0: Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. Mike Bloomberg's alma mater, Johns Hopkins University, has been at the forefront of providing critical research, science, and expertise around the coronavirus. This episode of our series on coronavirus response efforts borrows an episode from Public Health on Call, a new podcast brought to you by Dr. Josh Sharfstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a frequent guest of Follow the Data. As many of our listeners may have seen, the Hopkins COVID-19 interactive map and dashboard created by the Johns Hopkins Center for Systems Science and Engineering has been a critical source of near real-time tracking of the spread of the coronavirus since it first emerged. Beth Blauer, Executive Director of Centers for Civic Impact at Hopkins, and an expert on the public's use of data and analytics, is part of the team that manages the map. Dr. Sharfstein and Blauer discuss how the global dashboard originated, what new features have been added, and how data can help individuals and officials make informed decisions for COVID-19 response. And if you like this episode, please remember to subscribe to Public Health on Call, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Beth, thanks so much for joining me. Now, I'm guessing most, if not all people who are listening to this podcast have seen the map that Johns Hopkins has of coronavirus infections around the world. Could you tell me how this map started?
2: Sure. So it's... I think one of the, a great JHU story where we had an incredibly entrepreneurial faculty member in the civil engineering program at uh, the Whiting School. And she had the foresight with her team of graduate students to think about how valuable tracking this virus would be in the very sort of early stages of the what was happening in uh, Wuhan, China. And so when it first started, she built the infrastructure, and her name is Lauren Gardner, and she and her team built the infrastructure, and just it was a stroke of genius. They started building it out and tracking it and tracking the data sources that were emerging that were going to be you know, critical to the fabric of having an understanding of the impact that the virus was having on the region. And as it spread, so did their analysis and their understanding of it from a data perspective. And they built out the global dashboard.
1: So, um, so you're telling me that nobody called Dr. Gardner and told her to do this?
2: Nope, this was completely her idea. From what I understand, it was her idea with her team. She's got a great team of graduate students that she works with in the department, and they have a history of tracking viral disease. So they have a really great resource on measles that I've had the opportunity to review. They've just done some tremendous work across the board. And so this is in line um, with the kind of work that they do. And so they did it and it just, and, and I think Ultimately, it was originally just sourced for researchers. Um, other people, like her, Dr. Gardner, who do modeling and do thinking about uh, the spread of disease, and it just became this sort of viral sensation. Uh, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended.
1: A viral in the good sense of the word. Viral. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, and it's not just a map, right? It actually, the raw data is available to anyone who wants to download it. Is that right?
2: That's right. Dr. Gardner made a commitment very early on that all of the data that was going to be part of that dashboard was going to be open and accessible so that other
1: people could do their own analysis. So how do people do that if they want to get the data?
2: So the data is sits in what's called a GitHub repository. So there are data sources that are in that repository that are like think of it as a compendium to the map. And you can go and you can see where exactly all of the data is coming from. And then there's links to the actual data set. So you can see exactly where the data is sourced. And then she partnered with Esri, the technology company that um, the map is being served out on. And they also have a lot of like the images and the layers that you see are part of their stock data. And they've joined her in their commitment to being very transparent about the data and allowing people to use that data in their own analysis as well.
1: So, how many people are using the map or the underlying data?
2: So, you know, the Hopkins COVID resource site gets, you know, millions and millions, you know, tens of millions of viewers a day. There's over a billion calls to Lauren Dr. Gardner's data it is like one of, I mean, for me, having worked in this field for a long time, uh, something that is completely unprecedented. And so she is fielding and handling and managing a massive public resource right now.
1: That's amazing. And so there may even be more people accessing the individual data than there are people just clicking around the map.
2: That's right. Because again, because of this commitment to um, making the data public and allowing people to do their own analysis and build out their own resources, much like I've been doing, all of that data is there. But she has the ability to sort of track when people are calling on her data so they know when it's being used or um, manifesting in other sources.
1: Now, I know that you have a lot of experience in your career making data available for cities and states and others, helping cities and states and others make data available to the public. So you're watching this um, happen. Suddenly, You know millions of people are using a resource like this, and as you said, at a scale that you've never seen before. So what are you thinking sitting at your computer playing around with the data?
2: I'm totally freaking out. I'm just like, not just freaking out that the data is so rich. And like, I think it was also for me, this moment that I've been waiting for my entire career where people start to really understand the value of public data and understand why it's so important that we have access to trusted data sources that are going to give us real-time ability to influence Decisions we're making in our personal lives, and this is by far one of the most profound examples of that.
1: So you didn't just have that thought; you started uh, emailing with Dr. Gardner, <laughs> yes, right? Started
2: meddling. My yeah, own, so, yes.
1: so, so tell me. Let's talk about uh, what was just launched and um, your ideas that are now um, on the website.
2: So I spend a lot of my career focused on building tools for public sector leaders and those folks that are working in the public sector to be able to integrate the use of data into decision-making. And so I first looked at this as an opportunity to provide some very hyper-localized views of Dr. Gardner's data so that it could really help local decision-makers understand why it's so important to maintain fidelity to stay-at-home orders, to start thinking about the economic impact that uh, the coronavirus was having on local economies, to start really understanding why they need to keep an eye on really vulnerable populations. And so I just started working in the data and wondered if I could bring in, at least from the U.S. perspective, some contextualizing information um, that would allow people to see the real impact that the virus is having right now, and then also that potential impact that we know is coming from both a disease progression perspective but also from an economic perspective.
1: So you used the term hyperlocal. So initially it was just the countries that were on the map and now when you go on to the website what can you see?
2: Now you can see um, Dr. Garner actually put in some great data on the U.S. map. Now, so the U.S. map, you can see hospitalization rates, and the global dashboard, you can see testing rate, um, testing data, and you can also see um, a fatality rate. We then built a standalone US view that is actually rendered at the county level. So for every single county in the United States, you can see all of the basic information around confirmed cases, around fatalities, around what that data looks like up against a state context, but you also get to see a few more sort of enhanced views of what those communities are. What are the racial makeups of those communities? Um, What are the population demographics of those communities? How many people are relying on employee-funded health care in those communities that might be urgently trying to figure out an alternative to that? Um, We're trying to really sort of give way to this economic analysis that's kind of coming up next, that we can really think critically about how local Communities can start bracing for the real realities of this
1: recovery. So, um, someone can go online now and look at their county, see the epidemic curve just for their county, in other words.
2: That's right. You'll be able to see the um, the, the epidemic curve for their county. This is why I'm a lawyer and not a public health (laughs) expert. And um, And then they'll also be able to see a whole host of these other sort of contextualizing indicators. And then in the coming weeks, uh, we're evolving this site to bring in some additional modeling, some additional work around the economics of the, of the virus, and really to give a way to help further the decision making that's going to be so critical in the next weeks, months around what the current policies are on social distancing and of
1: well, I mean, really, right, right. Even now, if somebody is thinking, "Well, what does it mean for my county?" You can see where you are on that epidemic curve and know if it's still rising. Maybe now's not the time to be, you know, putting everyone back back to work. On the other hand, if it's declining and seriously declining, then there are maybe some more options for places to consider.
2: Right, and those conversations can happen in a very informed, data based way.
1: Right. and And you can compare if you see a county out there that's doing something, you can see how your county is looking your curve versus other curves. Let me ask you, is the data for this local view also going to be made available to people to download?
2: That's right. Everything following Dr. Gardner's uh, example, everything that we are releasing is public data. And there is a GitHub repository page also for all the data in the US-based map. And a lot of our, we're completely in sync. We're using Dr. Gardner's data for the disease monitoring data. And then all that contextualizing data is then sourced in the map. And if you Actually, are discovering your county based dashboards, you can click right into those different areas and see exactly where that data is coming from.
1: So, people may actually download this data and be able to look at things in interesting ways, look to see whether some of those indicators of counties might predict. Or be associated with certain dynamics with respect to the epidemic curve, for example.
2: Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do. That's why, also in the in the dashboard for each county, you can see the county's data up against the state data to see whether or not this county is above the average or below the average of reporting for a state. I think that we really wanted to have the ability to let people see where in their states are being most disproportionately affected by disease.
1: Now, um. Last question for you, which is the public-facing nature of all this. Like, it, you might be previously that this kind of data would be looked at by you know the officials who are really responsible for this, and there might not be like a commitment not just to putting out tools and toolkits, which is what you're doing, but you're putting out all of the raw data for people to be able to see. You know, why is that important, and what do you think that means for sort of the the future of these kinds of resources?
2: So it's important in one respect, because at the end of the day, when we're six months from now, and we're looking back at some of the acute moments that we're experiencing right now, there's going to be researchers all over the globe that are going to want to look at what was the data that was most influential in really framing not only the pandemic, but also the pandemic response. And so now we've got this repository of all those data sets that researchers can very easily go back to and understand what was being measured and what was being shared. And for, for me, that's really sort of my commitment also to open science and sort of the academic component of this. The other piece and the reason why is because like this data is all being generated very quickly and like having the ability to do some validation and some of that validation is going to come from user use. And so one of the things about having it open allows us to get feedback from users of the data to say, these are errors that we're experiencing. Or I think there's a a more robust data source that could validate this measure in smarter ways. And it allows us to sort of crowdsource all of those ideas and get that feedback. So it can be looped back into the design and and proliferation of those tools. And then it also gives way for local governments to take this data and internalize it in any way that they would like to internalize it and share it with their public or to influence their own decision-making.
1: You know, a lot of people wonder about the... Lack of trust that sometimes can exist in government, you know, between government and and citizens, and obviously trust is a very important part of a crisis response. Do you think having data publicly available helps people understand um, better the basis for decision making, and maybe can, you know, help rebuild that trust?
2: Absolutely, and I think that not only does it help to rebuild the trust because you're being so open and transparent about the data, but it's even more powerful when you're aligning it to action. And so if you're taking on specific policy decisions that may not be popular, like a lockdown or a stay-at-home, when you're pairing it with this data, it really does help those folks that are struggling most with the decision-making understand why you're doing it. And I think that that allows people to make their own decisions for their families and for their communities in ways that sort of more black-box decision-making just doesn't afford.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time to talk to me about the MAP and Data Repository.
0: Oh, well, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Special thanks to Lindsay Smith Rogers, the producer of Public Health on Call, for giving us permission to adapt this episode for Follow the Data. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data and Public Health on Call podcasts. This episode was adapted for Follow the Data by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Amy Jun, and Lauren Nolan. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Katherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.